Hello, and welcome to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles, Missouri. It is our hope that the following message will help you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. For more teachings, please visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com. Mark 13, 14 through 23. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. A man in a field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that has never been seen from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect, whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see there, don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch out. I've told you everything in advance. Let's pray. Almighty and everlasting God, you govern all things both in heaven and on earth by the power of your will. We ask that you would mercifully hear the prayers of your people today and in our time grant us your peace through Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm sure that uh, everyone here in this room has always listened to and heeded every warning that was given to them. Uh, someone told you, uh, don't do this, uh, don't do that, and you immediately listened to them because you all, you, you don't like any pain and you've never experienced any of it in your life, right? No, of course not. We ignore warnings all the time. I'm, I'm just as bad as it as anyone else. Uh, I don't remember all of the details, but several years ago, there was a snowy, icy day, and I was told by someone to watch out, because it was icy, that I should use caution as I walked across the parking lot. They said, watch your step, Chris. And I was young at the time, and I figured, uh, you know, that's, you know, I don't, I'm not going to have any problems, but I was wrong. I began with caution, because they said, hey, watch out, but... As I made my way across the parking lot, it didn't seem as slippery as they led on for it to be. And I was using this penguin walking technique, which does kind of work. And so I was quickly lulled into thinking, oh, it's not as icy as, as I think it is. So I began to gain some confidence taking regular-sized steps. That was my mistake. I took a few steps And then all of a sudden, my feet were above my head and my backside hit the ground with a thud and I let out a... Have you been there? Yeah. You see, I thought that the danger of the ice, I thought it was fake news. So I wasn't watching very closely about what was going on and I ended up in pain. Jesus had a similar warning in his prophecy in Mark chapter 13. Four times he calls his followers to watch out, to be on guard. In verses 5, 9, 23, and 33, he says, watch out, be on your guard. And then he tells them to be alert, stay awake. He tells them that three times in verse 33, 35, and 37. In fact, in verse 23... The last verse of our text for this morning, he gives them the reason why. And the reason Jesus is telling them all of this in advance is so that they will watch out and they won't be surprised when it comes. Now, this long teaching of Jesus in Mark chapter 13 begins with Jesus' answer to a comment from one of the disciples. One of the disciples said as they were leaving the temple, Oh, look at this building, it's so big and 
and mighty and powerful and majestic, and we described it last week with its huge stones and its gold gilding all over the place. It shone like the sun when it hit when the sun hit it, it shone brightly. It was beautiful. And one of the disciples said, Look how beautiful it is. Look at these big stones. And then Jesus tells them that the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone on top of another one. Well, the disciples thought, because they were taught this, that the only way that the temple would be destroyed is if it was the end of times, because the temple represented God, and it was this huge, powerful structure that was immovable. And so if the temple was going to be destroyed, that must be the end of the world. So they ask, when will it happen? When will this take place? And how will we know that it's happening? What will be the signs of the time? And Jesus' response begins in verse 5 to those questions. And we learned that many deceivers would come claiming to be Jesus. There would be wars and rumors of wars. Nation would rise up against nation. Earthquakes, famines. Followers of Jesus would face persecution from their governments and authorities and be flogged. And many, and for many, the most heartbreaking persecution that they would receive is their own family members would betray them. And families would betray one another unto death. Terrible, awful, horrific atrocities awaited those who followed Jesus. And they followed Him by the droves. And He tells them, all these terrible, awful things that are going to happen. They ask, what's the sign? When is it going to be? He tells them all these terrible things are going to happen. And then He tells them, but that isn't the end. Not yet. These are just the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning of the birth pains. And he tells them there will be deception, division, disaster, despair. That's the beginning. That's not the end. That's the beginning. This chapter is not designed, this 13th chapter of Mark, it's not designed to be a, a road map to the apocalypse. Jesus telling His disciples these things wasn't encouraging them to make their own end-time prophecy charts and sell them on a TV infomercial. That's not what He was trying to do here. Instead, what He wants them to do is to watch out, to be on guard. He wants them to be inspired in their faith. He wants them to hold on until the end, to not be surprised when that suffering comes, to know that with His Holy Spirit within them, they can endure the suffering that they will experience. They can make it. They can make it. You might remember from last week that I said that the 13th chapter of Mark may be one of the most challenging chapters in the Bible to interpret. Charles Spurgeon, who was preaching on this, uh, the parallel passage of this in Luke, said that this teaching of Jesus, quote, is confessedly very difficult to comprehend, end quote. And when I read that this week, I said, you think? <laughs> It is. This is hard to read. And part of the difficulty in understanding this passage comes from the fact that Jesus is speaking about two events that are far apart in time. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the final return at the end of the age. And it's not always clear which one He's speaking about. It's kind of like when you're driving toward the mountains. This is the image I gave you last week. It's kind of like the prophet is looking at the mountains and he's describing what he sees in the distance. And they look like they're close together, but when you get to that first mountain, you realize how much farther that second peak really is. And so Jesus is describing something that's close and then also something that is very, very far away, but they, they're so similar, they look alike. They look like they're part of the same thing. And so, more than trying to figure out when Jesus is going to return, He wants His disciples to get to work. He tells them the Gospel must be proclaimed to all of the nations. Get busy doing that. And the instructions that are attached to the signs of the end times are very practical in Mark 13. Jesus wants us to be prepared. 
He wants us to be ready, and He wants us to be busy. Well, our passage begins with a very puzzling, mysterious phrase in the Bible, probably one of the most puzzling and mysterious in the Bible, the abomination of desolation. Now, if you haven't studied your Old Testament prophets, this phrase probably means nothing to you. You're like, the abomination of desolation, all right, that sounds bad. Matthew is a little bit more helpful. He writes, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and then he goes on. See, Matthew tells us that not only the abomination of desolation was first recorded by Daniel, but he also tells us the place that it shouldn't be, in the holy place. That's, the, that's a central part of the temple. That's where God met with His people. So, I think that to understand this idea of the abomination of desolation better, we have to dig into the three passages that it's mentioned in Daniel's prophecy. And you should take time this afternoon to read Daniel chapter 9, 10, 11, and 12 because it will help you get a better picture of this. We're going to have to move quick because we only have a short time. But... But if we, can get our, if we can see what's going on in Daniel a little bit, it'll help us get our bearings as we move back to Mark's Gospel. And so the first place that uh, this phrase is mentioned is in Daniel 9, verse 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for a week. But in the middle of that week, he will put a, a stop to the sacrifice and offering. And the abomination of desolation will be on a wing of the temple until the decreed destruction is poured out on the desolator. That's the one who's doing all of the terrible things. Um, Just so you know, in Daniel, uh, when he talks about a week, a week has seven days, and for Daniel that means seven years. And so it says, halfway through, a stop. And so you've probably read about seven years of tribulation, and three and a half, and all that. So all of you that are in on that, good for you. Those of you that don't know that, uh, it, it, it's good to know, but you don't need to know it to understand what's happening in Mark 13. But just wanted to point that out for those that may have heard that before. Daniel 11:31, His forces will rise up and desecrate the temple fortress. They will abolish the regular sacrifice and set up the abomination of desolation. And in 12:11, from the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. And so this phrase is a well-known phrase in Jewish history, but the question then is, what does it mean? Right? What What does this mean? In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God makes very clear what is an abomination. He makes it very clear what He considers an abomination. And the same word that is used in Mark's gospel, the word abomination, is used 108 other times throughout the scriptures. And if you include words that are similar to it, um, you bump it up another 36. And I won't do the math in front of you because I'm sure I'll embarrass myself. So 108 plus 36, that, that, there, that's many times God considers things an abomination. Now let me tell you what some of those actions are. They include sacrificing children. And it says sacrificing children to fire in another place. Divination. Telling fortunes. Interpreting omens. Practicing sorcery. Casting spells. Consulting mediums and spiritists and inquiring of the dead. That's necromancy. It is connected to lying and cheating as well as all kinds of sexual sins including male and female prostitution, bestiality, and homosexuality. All of these acts are considered abominations to God. However, there is one more behavior that is connected to the word abomination most often and that is false worship. False worship. Because it goes against the first two commandments. Putting something over God and then also creating an idol. 
And over and over again, the worship of false gods and the worship of the sun and the moon and the stars and the sacrifices that are made to demons and the idol worship and all the other kinds of idol worship and false worship that are, that are in the Scriptures, they are denounced by God as detestable abominations. And those are just a few of the examples. We don't have time to do all 100 and whatever, 40, whatever there are. The Jews would have seen any kind of idolatry as an abomination. Any kind of false worship. Because they believed the Word of God. And they followed the Word of God. And so by the time that Mark writes his Gospel, the Jewish people have already seen a partial fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel. In 168 B.C., there was an evil Syrian leader. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. And he invaded Palestine. And he overtook Jerusalem and he took control of the temple. And once the temple was under his control, he erected a statue and an altar to the pagan deity Zeus right in the middle of the temple of God. And then on the Lord's altar, he sacrificed a pig. And that doesn't sound too bad, except for God said pigs are unclean, and the Israelites weren't allowed to have them or eat them or anything like that. No bacon cheeseburgers. But God said it was unclean, so they followed God's rules. So the fact that he not only set up this false idol and altar, he sacrificed an unclean animal in in God's temple, and I mean, it was terrible. And then on top of all of that, He ordered the Jews to worship this false god under the sacrifices. This act of abomination and idolatry made the Jewish people so angry that they would soon revolt. And it became known as the Maccabean Revolt. And you can read more about that later. In fact, I'm going to describe some of the scenes from it in just a moment. So when Jesus says, watch out for the abomination of desolation, they probably thought, yeah, that's already happened. Antiochus Epiphanes, the altar to Zeus, the sacrifice of the pig. And in a sense, they were right. Some of it had happened. But verses verses 15 through 19 tell us that Daniel's prophecy, along with Jesus' prophecy, have some kind of future element to them as well. And they describe a future destruction and a future abomination that is going to come to Jerusalem. Jesus is pointing back to Daniel's prophecy so that it will cause them to look 40 years into the future to see what will happen in A.D. 70. And we know that this event was also a partial fulfillment because in Luke's record of this, uh, of this saying and teaching of Jesus, Jesus warns them that the city will be surrounded by armies. And in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus, he entered, he, he took down the city. And in September of that year, he walked into the temple and he plundered, he plundered the things in the temple. And then they carved this relief of him. It's called the Arch of Titus and they did this for great victories in Rome. And you can see some of the temple artifacts being carted away as they stole the things that were dedicated to God. Not only did he plunder the temple, but as he, as he did that, he replaced those holy things with false gods. The eagle, golden eagle standards, and he made sacrifices to them. And they represented their pagan gods. And then when the temple was finally destroyed and all the all the rocks were pulled apart. They set up images of Caesar on top of the Temple Mount. Top of the ruins for people to worship. More and more idol worship. Detestable abominations to God. And we're going to come back to this in a moment because we still need to look at the distant future fulfillment of this. But I want to finish the warning for the people in the first century. Jesus' warning about the abomination of desolation 
was the trigger for everyone to flee to the mountains because tribulation was coming. Verse 15 describes the need to get out of Dodge quickly. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to the pregnant woman and the nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter, for those will be days of tribulation. He says, leave, go, run. There's no time to get your purse. There's no time to grab your jacket. You can't even grab a snack from the refrigerator. Just start running. Don't you remember what happened to Lot's wife when she looked back? That didn't end very well for her. Don't make that same mistake, Jesus is saying. The worst fate, he says, and this shows some great compassion on Jesus' part, he says the worst fate will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers because I imagine that that jumping over walls and and crawling through the cracks and crevices of, of the hill country in Jerusalem and Judea was probably not easy even if you weren't pregnant or even if you weren't nursing, but that added responsibility would make it difficult to run away quickly. And then he says that part of their prayers should be that it doesn't happen in the winter in verse 18. Now, winter in Jerusalem isn't exactly like the winter in Missouri. So winter in Israel is mostly cold and rainy. They do occasionally get some snow, but not very often. And that doesn't sound too bad to us. In fact, we might be thinking, that'd be nice. You know? A few years ago, what did we get? Like 18 inches of snow? Like, oh, move to Jerusalem. We get just, it's cold and wet, but not as much snow. But we're thinking in 21st century American here. And we've got to think like a 1st century Jew. They don't have cars. So they're all on foot. Or camel. Or donkey. And as far as I remember, donkeys don't have heaters built into them. So they're still going to be cold, and they're still going to be wet. And then they wouldn't be able to stay on the main roads because they're fleeing. On the main roads, the armies would probably find them and, and kill them. And so they would have to travel through the, the desolated areas, the deserted areas. And there are this geographical feature called wadis, W-A-D-I, wadis. And a wadi, they, they were prone to flooding, especially in the wintertime when it would rain and all the water would collect together and it made them nearly impossible to cross and have killed many people. Even today. I read an article, I was looking up wadis and some news articles from the last year or two came up about people in, in this area in Palestine dying because the water came so quickly it washed them away. And so Jesus says, pray that it won't happen in winter because it will make it even more difficult. Now, it probably sounded strange for the disciples to hear the things that Jesus was saying because Jerusalem, it was usually considered a place of refuge. It was usually seen as a place that had these mighty walls that protected everyone who was inside of them. And so they were probably thinking, why would we run? Why wouldn't we just stay in the city? We'll be protected. We'll be safe. Well, verse 19 gives the answer to that. It says, There would be terrible tribulation, the likes of which have never been seen before. When Jerusalem finally fell to Titus, we found out about the horrors that were experienced inside of the city. They're some of the darkest pages of history. As the army approached, all the people in the surrounding land ran to Jerusalem. And so it was packed with more people than it usually had. And so Titus, what he did was he saw all this going on and he thought, you know what I'll do? I'll just surround the city with all of my armies and we'll wait them out. We'll starve them to death. Eventually they'll come out and they'll say, okay, fine. Just take it. On the inside of the city, there were people that had all kinds of differences of opinions, different factions and different divisions, and they were fighting each other. And so they faced a war on the outside of the wall, but they were also facing a war on the inside of the wall. The Jewish historian Josephus tells 
the story of, of this event in his fifth book on the Jewish wars. He says around 97,000 were taken captive and 1.1 million died. And they either died a slow, agonizing death from starvation or by the sword. Here's what he wrote. Then did the famine widen its progress. This is, he's talking about the fact that there was, there was no food. There wasn't even a twig. There wasn't even a blade of grass in Jerusalem because everybody had eaten it up. There was more people in there than they had, they had rations for. And after a short period of time, all the food was gone. And he calls it a famine. He says, Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people uh, by whole households and families. The upper rooms were filled full of women and children dying of starvation. The lanes, that's the roads of the city, were full of dead bodies of the aged. The children and the young men, they just wandered about the marketplace like shadows, swelled with the famine. That means you've seen the, the, the commercials on TV where they're trying to get you to send food to Africa and that little kid's got his belly and you're like, oh, look at him, he's, he must be really full. No, he's not full, he's starving to death. And that's what happens. Your body swells like that when you're, when you're starving. He says they were all swelled with famine and they fell down dead wherever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those who were sick themselves didn't want to do it. And those that were hardy and well were deterred by the great multitude of the dead. They said there's way too many of them. We'll never get it done. And they were worried. They were worried that they would die themselves because many of them died as they were burying others and went to coffins before the fatal hour. There was no lamentations made under these calamities. The famine confounded all natural passions. A deep silence and a kind of deadly night seized the city. That's bad. And if, it, if that wasn't bad enough, some people that were still within the city took that as an opportunity to plunder the dead bodies, and to steal their things. And since they had eaten up every plant and every bush and every, every little thing, every cricket, every ant that was within the city, they were forced to dig through cattle dung to look to find something that would satisfy their starvation. Men it said that men would chew on their leather belts and their, and their leather sandals. And some of them even turned to cannibalism. Those who stayed were trapped and they experienced a terrible tribulation and a disastrous death. However, Christians at that time fled the city. Jesus had warned them, when you see the armies surrounding, when you see that this is happening, flee! Get out of town! Don't even go back and get a snack. Just get out of there. And another, another Christian historian named Eusebius recorded that the Christians fled Jerusalem to a place called Pella. And it's about 20 miles southeast of the Sea of Galilee. And when the city was surrounded, they safely, they safely got out. They safely got out. There's no doubt that many Jews and Christians thought that the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple would be the end of the world. This is it. This has got to be it. But it wasn't. Remember, Jesus told them in verses 7 and 8, this is not yet the end. These are the beginning of birth pains. And while it may have felt like the end, the siege in Jerusalem only lasted five months, which is much shorter than the other prophecies concerning the end of time describe. This simply means that there, uh, it says that uh, hold on, I missed, I missed a point here. <laughs> so the other prophecies describe that it was much longer. And so this couldn't have been it, although it's a partial fulfillment. It's a, it's a shadow, it's a picture of what's to come. Jesus said that God would cut those days short in Mark 13. And that simply means that there's an end to the tribulation. It's not just going to linger on and go on forever and ever, but there's a set time, and then that time it will be cut off. So Jesus doesn't want His followers to be alarmed. He doesn't want them to be paralyzed by fear. And He doesn't want them to be surprised by the suffering. Instead, He wants them to preach the Gospel to all of the nations and endure. 
to the end. Now, as we come to the last section of this passage of Scripture this morning, Jesus warns about deception. Again, he started that back up in verses, uh, around verse 5. And this is where we need to pick back up concerning the distant future part of the prophecy of Jesus. You see, Daniel's prophecy had some end-time elements in it. And Jesus' prophecy has some end-time elements in it. There's some that are going to happen close, but there are some that are going to happen at the very end of time. And the phrases that are being used in these passages are used in several different but related ways. And if you're a theology nerd and you want to look it up later, it's called Multiple Fulfillment Prophecy. And you can study that later. But it's difficult to interpret. It's difficult to interpret until after the event has happened. Because while we're going through it, we can't see all of it. But as we look back in history, we can realize that those events do in fact fit the description of what is happening. And so we know, we know that the events of 168 BC and, 78, or, and 70 AD are a foreshadowing of the final culmination of the end of time, filled with horrible destruction and persecution like no one on earth has ever seen before. And that's when Jesus will return. That's when Jesus will return. And in verse 21 and 22, Jesus warns, though, about the deception that's coming again. He says, if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, look over there. Don't believe it. He says, for false messiahs and false prophets will arise. Now these verses, again, they're just amplifying what verses 5 and 6 have already said, that as the end of time draws near, everybody's going to point to some kind of Savior. They're going to go, look, this guy, he can, he can really save us. He's the one. Go listen to him. That guy over here, he's, he's anointed of God. He's got the words of God and the touch of God on his life. We should go and listen to him. And Jesus is saying, whoa, hold on a second. Don't believe it. Don't believe all of it. He's warning believers ahead of time so that they'll be prepared when these false Christs, these false prophets and false teachers come along to deceive the world. And boy, haven't we seen a lot of them across the years. False teachers and false prophets. They come with an attractive message. They come with a message that everybody wants to hear. And they're very convincing. But what they're teaching is false. And their false teaching usually has some of these five elements as part of them. They want to create a belief system that benefits themselves. So the things that that they want to do that the Bible calls sin, they say, oh no, that's not a sin so they can continue to live their life however they want. So they can, they can trick people out of their things and out of their money. They create a belief system that benefits themselves and no one else. Our belief system should glorify God alone. The second thing that they do is they focus on only one part of the truth and not on the whole truth. And so they'll lift up some aspect of God usually. And they'll say, God is love. God is love and, and, and we should love and it's all about love. And I go, yes, but the Bible also says that God is just. And while He loves us deeply, He won't let us get away. His love won't let us get away with our sin forever. And people will say, God wants to reward me. And He wants to do good things in my life. And He wants to make my life easy. And I say, yes, that's true, but there's a balance on the other side. That those who reject Him and disobey Him will spend an eternity in hell. And destruction will come their way. These people, they'll lift up one aspect of God without remembering that God is more than just one thing. And then they'll ask you some off-the-wall, ridiculous question like, Um, Do you think that God can make a rock so big that even He can't move it? God's infinitely creative and infinitely powerful and 
there would, be, there would never be a situation in which he would... We don't need to make those two attributes of God fight each other. But that's what these guys are doing. They're raising one aspect of God or one aspect of the Bible or truth, and they're saying, this is what it's all about. And then everybody on the internet comes in and chimes in. They're like, what about all these million verses that say it's not only about that? It is about that, but it's also about this. And so they miss it, and they teach it. And it's good. It's got, it, 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 people like it. They want to hear it. But it's false. They also try to please people more than they are trying to please God. And I think that one's pretty self-explanatory. They care more about fitting in than they do about being holy and righteous. They'll also say that they don't need any church. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to, I don't need to hang out with other Christians. I don't need anyone to hold me accountable. And I say, where is that in the Bible? Where is there any Christian that's alone and all by themselves? Nowhere. They're always part of a group. They're always part of a fellowship. They always have accountability. Even the disciples were accountable to one another. But they'll say, no, you don't need any of that. Especially the leaders of these false movements. They don't want any accountability. They don't want to answer to anyone. And the fifth thing is that they always try to oversimplify. Let me, let me say one thing about that last one real quick. God is a big God. That's why we call Him Almighty. Because He's big and He's powerful. And, and He is higher than us. And so, how on earth do I think with my tiny, little, pea-sized, finite brain that I will ever completely understand God? Can't be done. Can't be done. Yet, the Scriptures also command us in 2 Timothy to study to show yourself approved to God, rightly dividing the word of truth. So on the one hand... I'll never fully understand God, but that's balanced out by the fact that I'm supposed to spend my entire life pursuing an understanding and relationship with Him. Not everything about our faith can be neatly stated in a tweetable quote. Some of the things about our faith are complex, and they're challenging, and they're difficult to wrap our minds around, and they take sentences and paragraphs and pages and books to explain. And people will say, well, if you can't give it to me in a sentence, then you can't really... Whatever. I'm like, okay, well, fine, I can give you a sentence, but there's going to be a lot of confusion because I've had to take a lot of it out to make it one sentence. And that's part of the paradox and the complexity and the mysteriousness of our faith is that we take our lifetime to study it and still never fully, completely grasp it. And that's all right. That's all right, because you wouldn't want a God that you could figure out completely. Because at that point, He's no longer God. Because you know everything about Him. In fact, the fact that we, that we can't understand God, and that He's so incredible and powerful and almighty, His great and awesome mystery that is Him should cause us to fall at His feet in wonder and love and in praise. And so Jesus says, watch out. Watch out. Don't believe all those doomsday prophets and false teachers that are coming. And then he added something right here. At this point in the text, he adds something. And I, had, I was scratching my head all week about it, to be honest with you. He said, they will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And when I think about signs and wonders, I think about God. God does Incredible signs and wonders. Jesus did signs and wonders. All throughout the Old Testament, there's signs and wonders, and they're all connected with God. Yet here, we see that the false Christs and false teachers are performing these spectacular miracles. They're truly performing signs and wonders. They're real. But then I remembered Moses in the court of Pharaoh. And he went there when God was going to release Israel from the slavery in Egypt, and, and God had given him ten plagues, ten signs that he was supposed to perform to have Pharaoh realize that he should let them go. And the first couple 
it says that Pharaoh's magicians were able to do those same things by their occult practices. That's in Exodus chapter 7, verse 22. They were able to duplicate the power of God by their occult practices. And so these, these false teachers and these, these false um, Christians and false Christs, they're going to come and they're going to perform genuine signs and wonders. But it will be by the power of Satan. In fact, the miracles are going to be so convincing, it says, that, that those who are the elect of God, who are chosen before the foundation of the world, the ones who would respond to the gospel and be saved, that these elect of God might be tempted to believe the lies. Of course, they won't, because verse 22 says, if it's possible, and that makes it an if of impossibility, if you look at the grammatical structure of the sentence, it says, if possible, it's not possible. But if it were possible, they would be. Because the, the signs and wonders and the, the miraculous will be so powerful around them that it will be very, very convincing. Which means that we must be cautious. We must be cautious not to always identify the miraculous with God. God does do miracles. He does a lot of miracles. And He works in powerful ways. But not every miracle, not every sign, not every wonder comes from God. And not every one of them has His approval. Or, the, or not every one of them is the approval of the person who's exhibiting them. And that's, that's a whole sermon all on its own. And we don't have time to go into that today. But I will say, as a word of warning, that this is especially important for us because there are many people in our world, many people in our country, many people in our city, and they're running around looking for a miracle. And they're saying, that man has the, has the anointing of God, and that man has the anointing of God, and if you just get prayed for by this guy, or if you buy that, that cloth from this guy, then you'll be healed and you'll be fine. They're looking for the miracle. But that doesn't mean that these people are acting on God's behalf. In fact, they might, they might just be acting on behalf of Satan to deceive people and draw them away from Him. That's what He says. That's what Jesus is saying here. The deception is going to be so strong, people will flock to them. Now let's circle back for a minute and finish that distant future aspect in the book of Ezekiel, sometimes the word lawlessness is substituted for the word abomination. And that leads people to connect the term man of lawlessness or man of abomination um, with the abomination of desolation of the Antichrist in 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-4. through 4. And, and that passage says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Now to me, that sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is describing in Mark chapter 13. And Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, paint a very similar picture to that. And you should read that, not right now, but later on and dig into that. Um, if you feel like I just skipped over a lot of things, you're right. I'm trying, to, I'm trying just to, to point out the connections uh, because we don't have time to dive into all of it today. In fact, I don't even know if I could preach all of this in one sermon. It would take weeks of sermons to do. So I am jumping ahead, but trust me. I've, if you can trust me, go check it later. But trust me, these are the connections. This man of lawlessness matches up with the one standing in the place where he shouldn't in verse 14. And that he's trying to set himself up as God, proclaiming that he's God, it connects to the abomination itself, which is false worship. It's idolatry. He's saying, worship me, not God. That's idolatry. And both of these texts depict a blasphemous antichrist who will do whatever scandalous deeds are necessary to deceive the world. And these actions will be the trigger for the true end of the world. The hinge of Mark 13, I think, is it links these things. See, when are these things going to happen? And it's related to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. 
with those days, which are the end time days, when the abomination that causes desolation pointed to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, it also pointed to a future and final end of the world, a final Antichrist that was to come. And then we're told those days of tribulation, the kind that those days will be days of tribulation, the kind of which have never been seen from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. This is actually almost a direct quote from uh, Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Whatever the worst things that have happened in history might be, whatever that is in your mind, or whatever atrocity you've experienced in your own life, or whatever horrors your mind can, can conceive of that haven't happened yet, those terrible things will not even register on the scale of the terror and the horror that will unfold at that time of distress when the end comes. Even the terrible things they experienced in Jerusalem in 70 AD, those are down here compared to the very end of time. It's going to be really bad. It's going to be really bad. A time of distress. Thank God that they'll only last for a time. And then there's an end to it. He'll cut the day short. He'll cut the day short. There's a time where he'll cut it off. People might have been able to flee from the destruction at Jerusalem, but no one will be able to flee from the final judgment of God. There's so much more that we could look into from this passage, but, but we'll have to save it for another time. And so I want to I wrap it up today by saying that this passage is a difficult passage because it has a a lot of moving parts and a lot of prophetic backgrounds that play into the interpretation that's going on. And if you're going, yeah, I didn't understand anything you said for the last 30 minutes, Chris. This all, I I just don't, I, I wasn't tracking with any of it. This part's for you, all right? This part is for you because all of that gives us a glimpse of how great our Savior, Jesus Christ, is. How He has, with the Father, before history was even begun, revealed Himself and His plan. And we get to see it unfolding right now. That these prophecies have been fulfilled, prove that Jesus is God, and we can be sure that they will be finally fulfilled one day. And what all of this means is that we need to prepare. We need to be ready. And thankfully, Jesus has shown that part of the plan to us as well. And the preparation for the last day begins with salvation. The story of salvation is truly the central focus of the drama of the Bible and of our lives. Salvation in Christ alone. And the best way to understand this world that we're living in now, with all of its wars and all of its hatred and all of its broken families and marriages and behind all of the, all the rebellious children and the chaos and the carnage, behind all of that is Jesus has come to earth to vanquish evil. He's come to earth to vanquish the evil one and to eradicate sin from our lives. That's the only hope that we have, and that is the only hope of the world. The Gospel gives freedom for those who are captive to sin. It gives sight to the blind. It gives peace to those who are broken and brokenhearted. It's the Gospel. If we try to make Mark 13 into anything more than a warning from Jesus to be urgent and intentional about how we live our lives and how we proclaim the Gospel to all the nations then we've missed a big part of what he's trying to do. And it's not just taking the gospel to the nations, although he says that, but we got to take the gospel to this room right here. And all of you who are sitting in it, you have to receive the gospel. And then when you have it in you, you take it everywhere you go. It starts here, and then it starts every step of the way when you go outside. Jesus' point is that no matter how the end happens, no matter when it happens, no matter what happens, no matter if the end time charts that you've been drawing on your wall for the last 40 years 
is accurate, or if you've never even made an attempt to try and figure out how all this end time stuff goes together, the bottom line is that the time is short. The end is near. And so Jesus wants you to strap on your gospel shoes and get to work. Romans 10.15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. That's the gospel. And we're told that one of the pieces of the armor of God are feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Those are gospel shoes. It's time to strap them on and take them everywhere we go, walking our lives, literally walking the gospel. And that's what we take to the world. The good news that Jesus saves. That when you trust in Him, when you repent of your sins, when you believe, He washes your sins away and gives you a new life. One final thought. When Jesus is talking about the future, His words of warning are meant to change how we live today. Last week I said, what if you knew that 7 o'clock tonight was the time? What would you do differently? And Jesus is saying, the time is short. Get to work. Live as if every day is your last day. And there's one church leader from the 6th century, and I'll end with this quote from him. He wrote a reflection for our passage today. He said, let us keep in mind that these present afflictions are as far below the last tribulations. Reflect with all your mind. He's saying that the things that you're suffering today, on that scale, they register in about here, but the end time is going to register here. He said, reflect on that. And then he says, remedy what is now defective in your present life. Amend your ways. Overcome evil temptations by standing firm against them. Repent with tears of the sins that you have committed. For the more you make ready against the severity of God's justice by serving Him in fear today, the more serenely shall you behold the coming of His coming as He takes His seat as the eternal judge. We've got to be ready. We've got to be ready. And we've got to tell other people to be ready. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Versailles. We would love it if you joined us in person. Our services are Sunday at 1045 a.m. and Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. We are located at 211 East Jasper Street in Versailles, Missouri. For more sermon recordings, visit our sermon page at fbcversailles.com.